Supper, okay? I'm going to continue this section, this part of uh, 2 Samuel, where we watch David rise to power, and this long war continues between the house of David and the house of Saul. So let's pray this morning as we get into God's word. Lord, just thank you for the chance, again, to be together, Lord, to gather around you, Jesus. We just want to set our hearts upon you and upon your kingdom, Lord. I thank you that as we do, the things of this world grow strangely dim. And it's really nice when that happens sometimes, Lord, to just focus on you, your kingdom, your nature, your goodness, your grace. And um, as we look at this messy story of David and his rise to power, Lord, I thank you that uh, you're at work in our messy lives. And uh, Lord, we just declare our trust in you. And we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask God that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we pick it up here, let me just kind of remind you where we've been. David is, you know, gone through a period of 10 years of wilderness wandering on the run from Saul as Saul irrationally pursued him and chased him down and sought to take his life. And then finally, as we've come to the end of 1 Samuel and transitioned into 2 Samuel, we saw this, that that Saul died by falling on his own sword in the defeat against the Philistines. And David had returned to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. The Lord had led him to the city of Hebron. And there the tribe of Judah had anointed David as king over their tribe, that, that southern tribe of Judah. And at the same time, what had happened in the north amongst the 11 other tribes of Israel was that Abner, Saul's longtime commander, had taken the one surviving son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and he had made him king over those 11 tribes. And now this long war had ensued between the house of Saul and the house of David, kind of this civil war amongst the tribes of Israel. But uh, yeah, by way of a reminder, remember this. Abner and Ishbosheth got into a little bit of a dispute over a woman. And uh, that's, that can happen from time to time between two men. And uh, so that happened. And Abner uh, said that he was, he was so angry. He said, I'm certainly going to see that the kingdom is transitioned into the hands of David and that he is made king over all of Israel as the Lord has promised him. And so Abner makes a covenant with David. Remember this, the last chapter we were in. He makes a covenant with David and the leaders of Israel that he's going to bring Israel under the authority and kingship of David. But after he had swung that deal with David, he is murdered. Man, the Bible's just full of intrigue and mystery and great stories. He's murdered by David's two nephews, Joab and Abishai, in a revenge killing. And so we, we pick up the story, David's innocent, and the 11, tri- innocent in the murder of, of uh, Abner, the 11 tribes of Israel are still loyal to the house of Saul and with, with and under the kingship of Ishbosheth, and the tribe, the single tribe of Judah, is under the leadership of King David. So the nation is fractured, and all the while, The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker, and the house of David is growing stronger and stronger. So let's pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 4, 2 Samuel says this. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And one of the things we see about Ishbosheth is he's not exactly the strongest character 
Uh, Abner was the commander of the armies of Israel, and really he was the power behind the king. He was the organization behind Ishbosheth, and without Abner, both the king and the people knew that they were no match for David and the people of, of, of Judah. And literally, this, this saying his courage uh, failed in Hebrew means his hands became weak. He had no strength left in him. And there's this huge leadership vacuum for Israel. Now verse 2. Now Saul's son, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna and the name of the other Rechab, the sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For, for Beeroth also is counted as part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled from Gitam and have been sojourners there to this day. So here's, here's these guys, uh, these two men, they're lower level soldiers in the house of Ishbosheth. Captains of his raiding parties were introduced to them, and they're, they're from this city where they don't drink wine. That's what I'm going to guess. Verse 4, you might have to think about that. Verse 4, Beerothites, they're Beerothites. Okay, verse 4. <laughs> Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this is kind of just important to a little bit of the history of the throne of Israel. We get this little abbreviation in the story about this young man named Mephibosheth, we find out that he is the one and only surviving son of uh, Saul's son, Jonathan. So Jonathan actually has a living son. And when we recall about Jonathan, we know this, that Jonathan was the heir to the throne of Saul. And so the rightful person to have the next spot in line would be his son, this young man, Mephibosheth. But we find out this, that he was just a little boy when his dad died, five years old. Chronicles tells us. And when Jonathan died alongside his father, Mephibosheth's nurse took him and went to flee uh, to take young Mephibosheth to safety, knowing him being the heir to the throne, that his life would be in danger. And as she stole him away to ensure his safety, somehow in the process, whether she's putting him on a horse or whatever's happening, he falls and he is, is crippled. I don't know if he was you know, a paraplegic or what the story is, we don't know. But he became disabled and he was never able to walk again. And his name is Mephibosheth. Now, his story is an amazing story. I, I love the story of Mephibosheth. We just get this quick abbreviation here. We're going to find out more when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a beautiful story. So I'm going to just say this this morning. Remember his name, okay? Just park that thought. Remember it over the next couple of weeks because he's going to become a significant person in the weeks to come. And when we get to chapter 9, we'll spend some time on his story. So for now, let's just file that thought. So the reason he's mentioned, though, is because uh, here is technically, as Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth is the rightful royal heir to the throne. He had the strongest claim to the throne of Saul. So verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berothite, Rechab and Banna set out, and about 
the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. So these brothers, captains of the raiding parties of Ishbosheth, uh, under the guise of going to get some wheat, steal into his house. And somewhere, it's kind of lost in translation here. It's different versions will translate this differently. Other versions say this, that there was a woman who was threshing wheat. And when she lay down for her rest, these two men stole into the house and they murdered Ishbosheth while he himself was having his afternoon siesta. And they stabbed him in the stomach. It's interesting. They actually go about the same way that Joab was killed. Under the fifth rib, he takes a dagger to the stomach. And what we find, well, this is just brutal. It's like, isn't this brutal? This is like cold-blooded murder of a man while he slept at peace in his home. The Lord had not directed, very important, the Lord had directed these men to do this. But these two men behead him. They bring his head to David and they say this to David, the the Lord has avenged you against your enemy. And we know that that Saul had been David's enemy, that he had sought his life, but Ishbosheth was guilty of no such offense. So let's read on, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, And they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. I read this, I go, wow, this is just a bloody culture, don't you think? Isn't this like crazy? It's like, you know, this this kind of stuff is in the scripture is the reason why some claim that they're chased away from the Bible. Um. So I think it's kind of important to just maybe mention that, you know, what we're reading here, being, you know, it's graphic, the details graphic, but the Bible is just telling us what happened. It's not just, you know, it's not prescribing and saying this is okay and this is how it should have gone down. It's just saying this is what happened. This is, this is the mess. And these men are murderers. That's what I want to say about them. They're total murderers. They claim the Lord had avenged David from the hands of their enemy, enemies. We, meanwhile, these men had taken this action upon themselves to bring shame upon the, uh, the life of Ishbosheth, his kingship, the house of Saul. And I think that the key to this text is actually 
verse 9, I want to point it out to you because if you if you got a pen, it's worth underlining. It's important to see some of these key texts from time to time. David says this, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. It's, it's worth underlining because these men said to David this, We're your protectors. The Lord has delivered you from the hands of your enemy. We have taken the life of Ishbosheth. And David is emphasizing this, that throughout his life, he has sought to trust the Lord. He has sought to follow the Lord in faith with patience and obedience. He's never had to make things happen himself, so to speak. He doesn't need two people who are going to go and kill a man in his sleep. He says, as the Lord lives, it's the Lord who delivers me. See, these two men had, I guess, assumed upon themselves to make it happen, so to speak. And so David said, well, then I'm going to reward you in the, I guess, in the context of their culture. And it's brutal. They're killed. And David was sure to make sure that they were put to shame for the very things that they had done. And he placed upon them all of the the guilt so that he and his house was accounted as guiltless before the Lord and before the people and the murder of Ishbosheth. It says here that he had their hands taken off and their feet taken off. The hands that took the life of an innocent man were cut off as were the feet that had delivered his head to David. And there is nothing here that is justifying the actions of these men. That's, that's what I want to say to you. It's just reporting back what happened and what David did to them in response for their wickedness. And so these men, they're, they're on the wrong side of David. And it's uncomfortable as you read this, um, you know, and, and it makes me think this. It's a dangerous thing to be on the wrong side of the king. Makes me think of Christ Jesus. I mean, we don't often like to say this about the Lord. But David took his enemies and he put them to shame. And Jesus says that he is going to do the same thing. Jesus will put his enemies to shame. This is why the message of the gospel is so important. And the the message of salvation is so important that Jesus has come to save the world from their sins and their rebellion and to bring them into relationship, bring us into relationship With the Father, his word says this, that while we were still enemies, while the Lord counted us as enemies, Christ died for us when we were dead in our sin. And I read this and I think, you know, this part of the story, it can bother you. But it's important to realize that when Jesus comes, he's going to deal with his enemies. He's going to strike them down with the sword of his mouth. He's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, the scriptures tell us. He is the judge of the whole earth. And unless we trust in the provision of the Lord in his son Jesus, we are counted as enemies of the living God. And the Bible says we'll be put to shame. But those who trust in him All who trust in him, the word of God says, will never be put to shame. Amen. Thankfully, in his love, the Father has made a way to redeem us while we were in our sin. You know, this week I I, I got into a conversation and it was, you know, maybe I was more listening a bit, but I, 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 you know, I had someone say to me or ask me, 
I don't know, it was, wasn't really a question. They were kind of telling me as they asked me. Do you really think that repeating a few words about Jesus and saying a prayer will save you? That it's necessary? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I never got a chance to get a word in, but I thought in my heart, yeah. The Bible says you have to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was raised from the dead and with your mouth, you confess that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. There is a moment and a point in time and history when we come to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. And reading this is uncomfortable. And and I have to say, like, I read it, I'm like, man, I, I don't feel like I can explain this or exposit this story or explain it away. It just makes me think this. It's not good to be on the wrong side of the king. It's not good to be on the wrong side of Jesus. But thankfully, this is the age of grace. Jesus has made a way for salvation. He loves you. And he invites us to respond to him. And I think, man, take advantage of the mercy and grace of God and give him your life. I I love this because David says this, as the Lord lives, he has saved me out of every adversity. Can you say that like David? As the Lord lives who has redeemed me out of every adversity. Isn't it true? Like if you think about your life, that the Lord has redeemed you out of every trouble to this point in time to bring you to himself. And I love that because it means this, that when I look forward in life, when you look forward in life, when you question where things are at in this world, look at you can just trust this that you should expect nothing different from the Lord, that he should do this for you to redeem you from every trouble. The Lord has redeemed my life from every trouble. That was the testimony of David. I think this is the key to this text as well in this sense. And, you know, as you read the story here, it's a complicated transition. As As things transition from the house of Saul to the house of David, it's... It's messy, but the point is this. The Lord is doing this work. Now, let's check out chapter 5. We're going to do two chapters this morning. Chapter 5, it says this. And all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. This is the third time David's been anointed. First, Samuel anointed him when he was just a teenager in his father's house and said, you're going to be the king of Israel. After the death of Saul... The second time David was anointed was by the tribe of Judah to be king over them where he ruled for seven years. And now here we read this, that all the tribes of Israel gather and David is anointed as a third time as king over the entire nation of Israel. And I love this. They say to him, you're, you're our flesh and bone. <laughs> you recognize that from scripture, right? That comes right from Genesis chapter 2. It's uh, 
Flesh and bone, it's an allusion to marriage from Genesis. Adam said this about Eve. She's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And he took responsibility over to her, to care for her, to be her husband, to, uh, well, he was supposed to lay down his life for her. And this is the call of David as king of Israel. It's like your husband over the nation, your king over the nation, your shepherd. We're your flesh and bone. Lead us, David. Care for us. Lay down your life for us. They use military language. They say, you've led us out and you've brought us in, even when Saul was our leader. And these are pictures of Jesus, church. Jesus is the bridegroom. His church is the bride. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. We trust him to shepherd us, the good shepherd, to be a good husband, to lead his church, to care for his church, to provide for his church. I like the military language that that Jesus leads us as David led the children of Israel. He is our shepherd. Jesus is our prince. Jesus is the great king, the father's choice. It's a great text. But the transition to David's kingship was complicated and it was messy. But the point is this. The Lord is the one who is doing this. And, you know, it makes me think this. You think about your life and the church, our world. You know, it's messy as Jesus rules over our life as our king. Our lives can be messy. As we go about the mission of the church, it's messy. As we put our faith in Christ, it doesn't mean everything in our lives are all hunky-dory and put together, but we're committed to follow Jesus. We're committed to the mission of the church. We're willing to lay down our lives. We proclaim to men and women that Jesus Christ is king. We announce that we are commanded to put our faith in him, but life is messy, isn't it? And this is a messy situation as we read on here, but, but David is exalted and he is made king just as the father will exalt Jesus. Now it says this in verse four, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, just as Jesus was 30 years old when his ministry started. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years at Hebron and he reigned over Judah At Hebron, sorry, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. It's just like amazing to think about how long David waited for the fulfillment of God to lead him into this role as king and prince over Israel. It says this in in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. That's, that's David. He's an example to us in scripture through his faith and his patience. The Lord led him after many years into the fulfillment of promise. And it's through faith Faith and patience that God leads you and I to inherit that which has been promised to us. Now, verse 6, it says this. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. 
the inhabitants of the land who said, David, you will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So Hebron had been the capital for David as he's leading the, the, the tribe of Judah. But now he's, now he's king over all the tribes of Israel. And to unify the nation, a new capital, choosing a new capital is a wise move. Jerusalem lay on the boundary between Judah and the 11 tribes of Israel. And so David chooses this city. I think the Lord directed him to be his capital. And Judah, uh, Jerusalem had never been captured out of the hands of the Canaanites. The Jebusite tribe lived there. And in all the years that Israel had dwelled in, in the land of promise, they had never taken this city. Jerusalem was a fortified city. Some of you guys have been to Jerusalem and we've been in Israel. It's like, it's about like out of all the cities that I've ever visited in the world, uh, which is not a lot, but it's definitely a few. It's like the most inconvenient place to place a city ever. <laughs> it's in the mountains. It's like, there's not really anything major geographically to make it a capital. It's a, not a place that's grace, great for sourcing water. But uh, the thing about, is, uh, about Jerusalem is this, is that it is, it is a fortified area. It's surrounded by mountains. It's up on the top of the mountains, Mount Zion. And it's surrounded on three sides by large valleys that would make it very challenging for enemies to approach the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the reference here to the blind and the lame is kind of strange, isn't it? It's like... It means this, it, it means this, that the city is easily protected. It's easy to protect this fortified city. So it's been suggested that literally it could be protected by the blind and the lame. Some have suggested this, that the Jebusites actually place blind people up on the wall because their hearing was more attuned and they could hear enemy armies approaching and announce their coming. Or it's also been suggested that Possibly the Jebusites would place lame people up on the walls of the city to be their eyes watching for approaching enemies. Now the book of Chronicles reports that it was Joab, David's nephew, who led the attack on the city, who scaled into the city through a water shaft. And David had promised whoever leads the army in this battle will become the commander of his army. And it's interesting, David, David, it says this, that he hates the lame and the blind. It's not a strange statement. But it's really this. He's just turning their taunt against them. It's kind of like, you know, someone says to you, you know, you're lame. And you're like, your mom's lame. <laughs> you know that classic line back. It's a your mom slap back at the Jebusites. He hates the lame and the blind. And it's amazing that David chose Jerusalem to be his capital. Jesus went to this city. You know what Jesus did? It says that David hates the lame and the blind, but do you know what Jesus did for the lame and the blind in the city of Jerusalem? He healed them. The blind man at the pool of Siloam and 
the crippled man. Now, the city of Jerusalem, on the north end of it, it's, it's surrounded by three valleys, but on the north end is Mount Moriah, the place where the Lord had led Abraham when he called him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham went to Mount Moriah. He journeyed there, climbed that mountain, built an altar, bound his son, placed him on the altar. And Genesis chapter 22 says that as he raised his knife to take his son's life, the Lord stopped him. And the Lord said, look over there in the thicket. I've provided a ram. I will provide, the Lord said, I will provide myself a sacrifice. Uh, and the whole scene of Genesis chapter 22 is a foreshadow of the crucifixion of Jesus and the Lord providing himself a sacrifice in his son Jesus. It happened here where the city of Jerusalem is, on Mount Moriah. Uh, Mount Moriah would become the place where David would purchase the land for the building of the temple and the temple mount where the temple sacrifices were offered is right there, Mount Moriah. It's also the place where Jesus would be crucified, called the place of the skull. All took place, all of those things, Abraham, the building of the temple, the crucifixion, all took place on Mount Moriah, the stronghold of Zion, the city of God, the city of peace, Jerusalem. It's where Jesus will reign when he comes at his second coming. The city of Zion pictures for us our eternal dwelling, our home, our heavenly home with the Lord. It's the place where Melchizedek ruled. Remember Abraham met him? The priest and king of Salem? Suitable site for a capital. This is where the Lord led David on the border between Judah and Israel, and he won the city and he made it his capital. Verse 9 says this, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Isn't that awesome, verse 10? That's the one that you should underline in this chapter for sure. Wasn't David, wasn't David who did all this? It wasn't because David was so awesome. It wasn't because David was so great. It was the presence of God with David and working through David. So many times we read this in the Bible, this great promise that the Lord was with this individual and they were blessed. That's what we're told about David, that the Lord was with him. It wasn't about the presence of David, the great king. It was about the presence of God with David. And I love that because Jesus has made the same promise for his church. As he commissioned his disciples, he said this, and lo, I am with you even unto the very end of the age. The Lord has promised his presence with us. That's the key to who we are. It's the key to God's working in us, the presence of God. It's not about us, but about the Lord. And David calls here, the, uh, the, the text actually calls, as it says, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. The, the Lord of hosts is a reference to the Lord as the commander of the heavenly armies. Heaven was on David's side. That's what this is saying. The armies of heaven were behind David as God worked through his life. I like it because to me it's a bit of an overshadow of the story of Joshua. 
when Joshua came into the promised land and they had defeated the city of Jericho and Joshua had this encounter with the commander of the Lord's armies. He met this man who held a sword over him and, and Joshua asked that question, are you for us and for our enemies? And he didn't know it, but he was having an encounter with Jesus. He was meeting Jesus and Jesus said to him, no, I'm the commander of the army. And the question is this, are you on my side? The emphasis is on the Lord, not Joshua. And here as we read here, the, the, the emphasis is on the Lord and what he did for David and for the kingdom of Israel. It's not about David. Now verse 11, And Haram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Here's the king of Tyre doing this great thing for David, building a palace for him, sending uh, provisions, cedar logs for his palace to be built. And it's, it's just pointing to the fact that this is legitimate. This David is a legitimate king recognized by the powers around him. He's not some rogue soldier in Saul's army. He's not just a tribal chieftain. He is the king of Israel whom God has anointed. And I think about Haram, I'm like, wow, that's pretty smart, man. It's pretty wise on his part. He needed to have good relations with Israel, keep things, you know, keep the economy moving, keep trade routes open. But more than anything, this is about a sign that David was legitimate in the eyes of the nations and the people around him. So again, verse 12, worth underlining. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now verse 13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Good luck for me here, right? Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eli, Felet. I don't know, I really like that name, Eli. I like that name too. It's interesting here again, you know, here he is, David's taking these, uh, all these more wives, more concubines. I mean, this was a culture, culturally, this was the thing to do, right? For a king in the ancient Near East. Not again, this is not a justification. It's just telling us what he did. And it's like crazy. You're like, man, this is nuts, David. You're not supposed to do this. The scripture was very clear in Deuteronomy that when a king came into power, he was not to take on many wives because it could lead to his downfall. And again, we just know this with the story of David. This was trouble for him in the future. All, all these women in his life and all these children, it, le it led to lots of turmoil and trouble in his house from rape to murder to betrayal, all of these terrible things. But one of the things I love about this as you read this, this helps us. This, this text is important. The reason why this information is here is because it's all pointing us to Jesus Christ. And Jesus can be seen right here in this text because this genealogy matters. Because 
Jesus came from the line of two of the sons of David. Mary, Jesus' mother, came from the line of Nathan. David's son, Nathan. That's that's Mary's line. And Joseph, uh, the stepfather, the adopted father of, of Jesus, came from the line of Solomon. So this is really cool. The Lord Jesus, when you think about it, he received... This is why the Gospels, they actually tell us both genealogies. They tell us the genealogy of Joseph and the genealogy of of Mary because the Lord Jesus received the royal bloodline of David and legal title to the throne of Israel, both through Nathan and Solomon's line. That's why this is important. You think about that. Jesus was adopted by Joseph because he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. So maybe you could attack his claim on the throne through Solomon, but he also had a claim to the throne through the line of Mary, through David's son, Nathan. So Jesus, in a sense, double claim on the throne of Israel. Now verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So this isn't necessarily in chronological order as we read this. It's probably before David took Jerusalem, because it tells us that when the Philistines gathered, David went down to the stronghold. That's a reference that he wasn't in Jerusalem because anytime there is a reference to Jerusalem in the scripture, you always go up to Jerusalem. He's going down somewhere to a stronghold. I, I, I wonder if he went to you know, the Dead Sea and that region, hiding amongst the caves and maybe some of the great places that are there, but he went down to the stronghold and the Philistines gathered in this valley called Rephaim. It means Valley of the Giants. It's just a few kilometers south uh, west of Jerusalem. And so David did as was the practice of his life. He sought the Lord. He sought the mind of the Lord for dealing with the enemy. Lord, how do I take on the enemy? Do you want me to take on the enemy? What does this look like? And we don't know if he heard from a prophet or he consulted with the priest or what it was, but the Lord said this, go and I will give the enemy into your hands. So verse 20, and David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of this place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Baal Perazim means the Lord breaks through. David gave all the glory to God. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't name this valley after himself and say, this valley's called awesome after David. He said, this valley, the Lord broke through on behalf of his people and he gave the glory to God and named it after the Lord. And it's cool here what happens. The Philistines left their idols behind. Do you see this? Harkens back to the defeat of the Israelites under the time of Eli the priest and his sons, Hophni and, is it Hophni and Phinehas, they carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. And the Ark was captured by the Philistines and taken to the house of Dagon, where the idol 
statues of Dagon fell before the ark of the Lord. And now this is like the, this, this story is being closed for us a little bit. This time, now with God's anointed leader in place, the Philistine idols are left behind as they are defeated by the people of God. And David and his men take their idols, uh, not for worship, but for destruction. Verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. I love this. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you and strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines from Geber to Gezer. The Lord says, this time we're going to have a different strategy against the enemy. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then know this, I've gone out before you, and go take on the enemy. Isn't that cool? Like, I mean, this is just awesome. I wonder, I, I don't know what was the cause of the sound in the balsam trees. Was it the army of the Lord of hosts, angel, angelic armies going before the people of God? I don't know. Was it just balsam trees giving away the movements of the Philistine armies as they maneuvered? I don't know what it was, but the Lord used this situation to direct David and again, the emphasis is this, that this is not David leading the army of Israel against the enemies of God's people. The emphasis is this, that the Lord goes before his people, that the Lord goes before them. And I think this morning, I just want to leave you with really one point, and it's this. Did you know the Lord goes before his people? <laughs> wow, what an amazing thing. They say, Lord, I, I, I'm fearful. I don't know what to do. <laughs> David could say, as the Lord lives, he's redeemed my life in every situation. David could say, as the enemy comes and I seek the Lord, the Lord has gone before me. David could say this, the victory in my life, the blessing that is in my life, it is because the Lord is present. David became greater and greater because the Lord was with him. And church, that's all we need right there. The presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, leading us, guiding us, directing us. May the Lord go before us. And for him to go before us, it means this, that we need to always be seeking him, seeking his heart, Seeking his mind, not pressing on before him, not being murderous men like those captains of Ishbosheth, but waiting in faith and patience for the leading and guiding and directing of the Lord. David was blessed in his kingship because the Lord went before him. And the Lord goes before his church. Amen. This morning, let's pray. I'm going to invite